everyone. My name is Haley Elizabeth, and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you could subscribe to the YouTube channel Haley Elizabeth every Wednesday for the visual version, or you could head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. Now for today's case, we're going to be talking about the case of Kimberly Cates. Now there is a lot to get through, so we're just going to hop right into it. The small town of Mount Vernon, New Hampshire was known for being a very quiet and homely town. With a population of about 2,000 and little to no crime, Mount Vernon was a perfect place to have children and retire. Here lived the Cates family, who included 42-year-old Kimberly Cates, her husband David, and their 11-year-old daughter Jamie. They lived in a nice cottage-looking home on Trow Road with a beautiful scenery and hiking trails, which was perfect because they were all nature lovers. Kimberly was a pediatric nurse and David was an engineer. Jamie was described as a very outgoing and lively child. She had a lot of interest in art and dance, who, with being an only child, had a very close relationship with her parents. The family would go on lots of biking and hiking and camping trips. David, being an engineer, his job required him to go on a lot of business trips, but since he felt uneasy leaving his wife and daughter home alone, he installed security alarms just in case if there was emergency while he was away, he would get a notification. And then on Friday, October 2nd, 2009, David was leaving for his business trip the very next day and noticed that for a while now, the alarm system had been malfunctioning. But as I said, this was a safe town and the alarm system had been malfunctioning for a while. They mostly just put it there as a safety precaution. So when David noticed that it broke, it was just more of a thing that he would get to later. And then on October 3rd, 2009, Saturday, David kissed goodbye to Kimberly and Jamie and headed off to his work trip. But David would have never guessed the horrific and brutal crime that would happen in the Cates household that very night. Kimberly and Jamie looked forward to their girl weekends together because it gave them some one-on-one time with each other. At around 8.30 p.m., before Kimberly and Jamie went off to bed, Kimberly texted David saying that they planned on going to the mall the very next day and they were going to stop at Jamie's karate studio. Usually, when David was gone on trips, Jamie would sleep in her parents' bed with her mom and this night was was no different. So at 8.30, they started to unwind and Jamie and Kimberly went off to sleep. Next morning, October 4th, 2009, Sunday, at around 4 a.m., the local police station would receive a chilling phone call from the Cates family home. The phone call sounded like the voice of a little girl who was barely audible, but the dispatcher was able to make out small whimpering and crying sounds. An officer showed up to the home shortly after and peeked around the home until looking inside and noticed movement coming from the kitchen. And when he flashed his light, it was actually a person crouched and hiding behind the kitchen counter. The officer then locked eyes with 11-year-old Jamie Cates, who was laying on the floor, covered in blood, and had a severed foot. The officer broke down the front door and picked up Jamie and brought her outside. The officer then called for backup and asked Jamie if there was anyone else inside, and Jamie said that her mom was in the bedroom and responded with, quote, I think my mommy is dead. More officers were 
were called to the scene, and even in Jamie's critical state, she was still able to gather enough strength to tell the officers that there were multiple male attackers who broke into her home that night. One of them was bald, and one of them had a knife, and another had a bat that he hit her mom with. She was able to remember one of the men yelling, quote, get the jewelry, and said that her dad was currently away on business, but she provided his name and number. She also said that the only reason she was able to survive was because she was playing dead. Police entered the home and found bloody footprints leading from the living room to the master bedroom and assumed Kimberly was in there. But when police opened the door, nothing could have prepared them for the horrific and gory scene that they were about to witness. There was blood covering every square inch of the room, all on the carpet, the walls, and on the bed they discovered Kimberly who had been brutally hacked to death by what seemed to be either a machete or other large knife. Officers take both Kimberly and Jamie to the hospital. Police search and found a broken basement window with the screen neatly laid next to it and a window with an air conditioning unit taken out. So since they found two points of entry, they assumed that this was indeed a break-in. There was also multiple pieces of jewelry missing. There were tire tracks in the driveway that didn't belong to Kimberly or David's car, as well as footprints in the front yard. When the community of Mount Vernon heard about all of this, they were terrified that these people may live in their town and on top of that, these people are unidentified and still on the loose. The word of this case quickly spread and it made its way to a nearby town about 20 minutes away, a town named Brookline. Apparently, two residents of Mount Vernon were visiting a friend's house in Brookline in the early morning of October 4th, 2009. The roommate of this friend who lived in the home was introduced to these two young men and the roommate would go on to say that he didn't really like these two guys and they made him feel extremely uncomfortable. But what made him especially uncomfortable was when these two boys started telling a story of how they just broke into someone's house and killed a mom and her daughter. The roommate didn't know if this was some messed up joke or a scare tactic in order to get him to freak out, but it seemed like they were enjoying the attention of it and the reactions they were getting. It wasn't until the next day when he saw on TV that a mother and her daughter were murdered on October 4th, 2009, the same day those two boys came over. He called the police immediately. These boys were later identified as 19-year-old Christopher Gribble and 17-year-old Stephen Spader. Christopher Gribble, aka Chris, was a longtime Eagle Scout and a proud member of the Mormon Church and he was also in the works of getting certifications to become a missionary. Chris was homeschooled for most of his life and did Boy Scouts as a young kid, but Chris always had extreme trouble making friends, and a lot of his quote-unquote friends would say that Chris was a little off and tended to ramble a lot in conversations. Chris didn't really understand social cues either, so this also affected not only his ability to talk to other people, but especially make friends. Chris, after high school, went to the army but in 2008, he failed out of his course, and upon returning home, Chris's family would say that there was a noticeable shift in Chris's demeanor that would later on only get worse. Chris kept a notebook where he journaled about his strained relationship with his mother and wrote about all of his dark and twisted fantasies on what he wanted to do with her and dreams that one day he could, quote, cut her into pieces and watch her scream while I scream back. A school counselor later found this notebook 
book in his backpack and when they read it, they immediately contacted the parents to which the mother was left horrified at what her son had wrote. Chris then was taken to a psychologist where he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. So leading into the interrogation, it is now Monday, October 5th, 2009, two days after David left and one day after the murder. The first to be interrogated was Chris, who was asked by detective to recap October 3rd, Saturday, which was two days before. Chris says that he woke up at 10 a.m. and made plans with Stephen to go out to yard sales, and they did visit some of them, but they couldn't really find anything, so afterwards, he just drove Stephen home. He said that since it was a Saturday night, they kind of wanted to have a chill night with friends, and Chris says that he was with Stephen, but Chris also introduces two other guys named Billy and Quinn. Chris goes on to say that Quinn wasn't there, though, because he was busy that night, so Chris and Stephen went to Walmart, and Billy showed up later on. These two guys Chris introduced was 17-year-old Quinn Glover and 18-year-old William, aka Billy Marks. So far in the interrogation, Chris is calm, but the detective starts asking about timelines, like, what time did you do this? What time did you do that? And at this point, Chris really starts to slip up. The detective confirms this with Chris by saying, quote, and this is sometime around midnight that you meet Billy. Chris replies with, quote, yeah. The detective then says, quote, how long were you guys there beforehand? And Chris says, quote, well, we didn't stay completely in Walmart. To be honest, I didn't really put it to memory much. I remember we were hanging out, but we weren't really doing much of anything. And as you can see, Chris is giving a very vague answer about what they did, which is a clear sign of lying considering the events he needed to recount only happened two nights before. Chris says that after Walmart, all of them went to 19-year-old Autumn Savoy's house and all of them watched the show Dexter. Now, if you guys don't know what the show Dexter is, it's basically about a man named Dexter Morgan who has a fascination with blood and is an expert blood splatter analysis. But not only does he help solve murders, he commits them too. But he only kills people who deserve it, such as pedophiles, rapists, etc., to justify his murderous choices. And Chris then goes on to deep detail about how much he loves this show and how it's his favorite show. He then goes on to say that the four of them watched the show for several hours before Chris and Steven decided to sleep in Chris's car. When the detective asked, why did you sleep in your car instead of sleeping in Autumn's house, Chris said that the heat in his car worked really well and that's why he wanted to sleep in his car. So Chris and Steven slept there overnight and left Autumn's house at around 7 to 8 a.m. and Chris drove Steven home, but the both of them did meet up later on at 1.30 p.m. to hit up more yard sales before finding a good amount of jewelry for only $20. So as for our second suspect, Stephen Spader. Stephen's mom actually struggled with addiction during her pregnancy and Stephen had tested positive for illegal substances at his birth, so Stephen was taken away from her. And at five days old, he was adopted by a new family and Stephen was your average outgoing child. He had all the opportunities in the world and a loving family by his side. He did sports, he did theater, and Boy Scouts 
notes to which ironically that's how he met Chris and he also had lots of friends and didn't really have trouble making friends. Steven's best friend was Autumn Savoy and Autumn went in to say that although Steven was very outgoing on the outside, he struggled a lot with depression and a rough home life. But Autumn then tells the police that Steven at one point went MIA for a while and he doesn't know where he went or why he went MIA. All Autumn knows is that when Steven returned to hanging out with him again, he was not the same person. Before, he was an emo kid that had issues at home and would dress and listen to that sort of music, but when he came back, he was now a completely different person. He was talking about how he wanted to be a big-time drug dealer, how he was in a gang, and he wanted to buy guns. And Autumn would also go on to say that during this period, Steven struggled a lot with really bad mood swings. Steven started to develop violent tendencies, and Steven's mom said that Steven even punched a hole in the wall after an argument, as well as pulling a knife out on his dad during an argument. Steven also told his dad that he was in the gang The Crips, but his dad believed this to just be nonsense. Steven then started abusing substances like weed, so his parents took him to a psychologist where they would diagnose him with conduct disorder, bipolar, and major depression. His parents spent thousands of dollars to help Steven and sent him to an addiction treatment center, but the center had returned Steven back to the parents, saying that he needed a higher level of treatment, a lot more than they could offer. So Steven ended up going to another treatment center for a couple months and then a psychiatric hospital, but later escaped that hospital to run off to New York with his girlfriend. The parents were kind of backed in a corner and they didn't know how to help Steven anymore. As for Steven's interrogation, he pretty much gave the same story as Chris. He says that on Saturday, him and Chris met up, they went to yard sales before getting dropped off at home, and then later on that night, him, Billy, and Chris were hanging out at Walmart before they went to Autumn's house to watch Dexter. After Dexter, they slept in Chris's car, and then the next day, he went home, but then they met up again to go to more garage sales, where they ended up finding a bunch of really good jewelry for only $20. Steven said that the jewelry looked expensive, so they decided to go down to the mall where Chris pawned off the jewelry. When the detective starts asking about timelines, Steven gets very defensive, and when the detective asks what time they went to the pawn shop, Steven replies with, quote, we just went to the pawn shop. I don't see why that's illegal. Steven said that the two of them needed money for weed, and so Chris pawned off two golden necklaces that rain that came out to $130. Steven went on to say that him and Chris actually met when they were kids in Boy Scouts, but other than that, they never really spoke before recently reconnecting in high school. At this point, the detective knows that Steven is lying because in Steven's story, he says that they were at Walmart until around 2 a.m., while in Chris's story, he says that they were at Walmart at 12. So the detective tries to angle and says that he went downstairs and he knows exactly what happened happened because Billy had confessed to everything. It was basically just hopes for Stephen to confess or maybe get a little something out of him. Stephen then gets defensive. He says that he wants to leave the station right now, that if they have nothing to arrest him with, then there's no reason he should be there. He starts saying that he wants the interview to end and he wants to go out and smoke a cigarette. So while Stephen is arguing with his interrogator, back in Chris's interview, he 
is keeping his original story, but the detective asks Chris what he knows specifically about the Mount Vernon case. Chris says that he doesn't really know much about what happened in Mount Vernon. He saw some article about it on the Telegraph early this morning, and one of his friends had emailed slash texted it to him. All he knows is that a woman was killed, and there was this 10-year-old girl in stable condition at the hospital. Now, this is kind of an odd detail to remember because, as I said, this room was covered with blood. Every square inch of this room was covered in blood. It was a horrific and gory scene. And the fact that Chris would remember that the little girl was in stable condition versus the very detailed and graphic crime scene really does tell you a lot. Chris also goes on to say, quote, and so I guess she was about 10 years old, which honestly, I hope she's going to be okay because that's horrible to do something to a little girl. Chris then digs himself deeper in this hole by replying with, quote, Assumingly that someone specifically tried to kill them, that rubs my conscience personally. I'm one of those gentleman chivalry sort of guys that you don't even hit girls, let alone go out and treat them badly. Now, this could be an attempt to bolster his image and make him look like a better person, but the detective rips this down when he tells Chris that the girl is indeed stable and she's stable enough to identify the two men that broke into her home. At this point, Chris becomes a lot more shaky and unsure of himself and the police further say that they tested the tire marks from the driveway and it matches perfectly to the tires of his car. Chris then preaches his innocence and says that he was driving around with Stephen and they may have stopped in Mount Vernon for a quick bathroom break. Chris at this point then to just overly talk. He starts saying that it's kind of scary that his car may have been on that road while while a horrific crime like this was going on inside of the house. He says that he could have been the killer's next victim because what if the burglars ran out of the house and needed a getaway car so they killed him and used his car? And he starts coming up with all of these scenarios, these what-if scenarios on what if something happened to him. But as you can tell, he only cares about himself in this situation and cares none about the dying mother and daughter inside of the house. Instead of saying something something like, I was so close to them, I could have helped, I could have done something. He instead worries about what would have happened to him. At this point, two detectives are interviewing Chris and one of them is playing a bad cop and this bad cop starts yelling at Chris and saying, quote, you better pull your head out of your behind and tell us what happened Saturday night. And this interrogator begins to say that he knows what Chris did and he needs to, quote, be a man and confess because it's not looking good for him. Chris, weirdly, although he's getting yelled at by this detective, he doesn't fold under the pressure. He remains very calm and collected and sticks to his original story. I'm assuming that, as I said, Chris was in the military and so probably he's used to people screaming at him and him remaining calm in response. Now, everything that I told you is obviously a bunch of lies. Everything that Chris is saying, everything that Steven is saying, it's not not lining up. It's just more of a bunch of back and forth banter. So what 
actually did happen that night. At this point, the police have all the boys, Billy, Quinn, Stephen, and Autumn, all in their own separate interrogation rooms. And when interviewing specifically Billy, he opened up pretty much about everything that happened at the top of the interview when the detective asked, quote, what do you know about the incident out in Mount Vernon? And Billy replied with, quote, which part? And it wasn't until Billy's interrogation where the police started to learn the horrific and brutal details of what exactly happened to Kimberly and Jamie Cates. As I said, Stephen, when he got back from being MIA, Autumn said that he turned into a completely different person. He was now interested in drug dealing and gangs, and one specific interest that Stephen had was creating his own gang, and so Stephen decided to to create his own gang and call themselves, quote, the Disciples of Destruction. And that is when Stephen would recruit Chris, Billy, and Quinn to be a part of it. Stephen created it to have a strong sense of brotherhood and to create financial prosperity for all of them. He stood on the grounds of loyalty and violence, and your only ticket inside of the gang was a ticket of crime. And that's when the group decided that they were going to commit their first crime. And they were going to plan a home invasion and kill slash dispose of everyone inside. Now, this was an idea that they had planned, but they didn't set a date. They didn't even know a house. But Billy says that on the night of October 4th, that's when he got a text from Steven saying that he was in Billy's trailer park neighborhood and wanted to meet up, but added no further detail. Billy walked down and met Steve, who was standing by a street lamp and said that him and Billy were going to walk to Walmart to meet up with Chris. Both of them walked to Walmart where they met up with Chris and afterwards they went to Quinn's house. Quinn would later confess to the police and say that Stephen had texted him in the afternoon of the October 4th about a robbery that they were going to commit and at first Quinn wanted out. Quinn made up a lie and said that his dad had grounded him because he had caught him sneaking out of the house and all Stephen responded with was, quote, I don't care if you have to leave through the window or the front door. You have to come out tonight. So at 12 a.m., Chris, Stephen, and Billy went to Quinn's house to pick him up. And it was only at this point when they picked up Quinn that Billy was informed about the robbery. Billy was told that the robbery was going to happen tonight and it was going to happen to a house located on Trowel Road in Mount Vernon. Billy said that Stephen and Chris had chosen the house and he does doesn't know why they specifically chose that one. Billy then goes on to say that he doesn't know what time they got to the house, but the entire time he was under the impression that they weren't going to kill anyone. Stephen just kept on saying, quote, we're gonna go make some money, and he assumed that maybe they were just going to rob the house and do nothing further. Billy said that he was afraid to speak out and stop the others, especially since all of his friends at this point were armed with deadly weapons, and so he he had no choice but to just sit there and stay quiet and just went with everything. Chris drove them to the home and dropped them off before parking the car on the next block. They then spent 30 minutes going over the plan and trying to figure out how to enter the home. While Billy was on lookout, he heard someone yell, quote, I got in. The group was able to shatter a basement window that was just big enough for Billy to fit in. Billy was the smallest of the group and he was only about 90 pounds too and so they basically 
basically just lowered Billy into this small window. And once Billy was lowered into the window, he successfully made it into the house. At this point in Chris's interview, he slowly starts to confess because now he knows how much Billy has revealed. It was later said that Chris had sent a text to his ex-girlfriend a couple days prior saying, quote, I've tried letting my nice side run things. It didn't work. Now the dark side of me will. Chris then says that the Thursday before the murder, him and Stephen realized that they were low on cash and wanted to do another robbery. He said Stephen told him that him and Billy were driving around and found a house in Mount Verton that looked perfect. And if you notice, this is actually contrary to Billy's story because Billy said that it was Chris and Stephen that picked the house, but in Chris's story, he's saying that it was Billy and Stephen who chose the house. Chris then says that on Saturday morning, Stephen came to him with the plan and said, quote, we're just gonna go in there, grab some stuff. If anyone's in there, we're gonna kill him and have some fun. And Stephen agreed to this plan. As I said earlier, they wanted to commit another robbery, meaning that they have done this before. And on September 27th, a week prior to Kimberly's murder, there was a home invasion to Stephen's next door neighbors, the McNeil family, as they were away at church. The McNeil family didn't even realize until later on that night around 7.30, they had noticed their back door had been kicked in and some of their jewelry was missing along with an iPod, a piggy bank, a Wii sports game, and their Wii council. And so on the night of October 4th, this was Chris and Steven's second robbery. Billy goes on to say that everyone was armed with knives and Chris had brought a machete that his father owned and gave it to Steven. After Billy made it into the basement, he realized that the basement door was locked and he actually got stuck inside of the basement. And so that's when they decided to take the air conditioning unit out of another window and Stephen was able to wiggle his way through it and sneak in. Once Stephen was inside the house, he let Chris and Quinn in through the front door and got Billy out of the basement and went forward with their plan. Chris located the breakers and cut all the power and they decided to steal an iPod out of Jamie's bedroom and use the light of the iPod to guide them to the master bedroom where Kimberly and Jamie were sleeping. They opened up the door and began talking, which led Jamie and Kimberly to wake up and Kimberly said in the dark, quote, Jamie, is that you? Before Stephen walked over to the side of the bed where Jamie slept and Chris walked over to the side of the bed where Kimberly slept. While Kimberly asked, quote, who are you? What's going on? And even tried to turn on the lamp, but couldn't. It was then when Stephen pulled out his machete and started hacking at the bed in the dark. Chris said that he stabbed Kimberly a few times with his knife in the chest, but quote, Stephen was just hacking away. He totally lost it. Quinn and Billy just stayed behind, standing in the doorway and watched the entire thing go down. Jamie woke up and tried to fight for her life and even threw herself over her mother's body, but Jamie got stabbed in the crossfire and slumped over to the side and fell into Chris's arms. Chris then stabbed her once close to the face and thrown her into a glass door where the glass door had shattered and she stopped crying immediately, so they assumed she was dead. Stephen still continued to hack at the bed before walking over to Jamie, kicking her in the head a few times and then returned to Kimberly. As 
I said, it was dark and so Stephen was just mindlessly throwing this machete around. Chris said that he noticed Stephen was completely losing it and he grew terrified of him and so he took the machete away and yelled, quote, Stevie relax, to which Stephen did. And when looking into the doorway, Quinn was no longer there because he was actually down the hall crouched with his hands over his ears crying. Kimberly had been stabbed 36 times and Jamie suffered 18 severe wounds as well as a punctured lung, a fractured elbow, a cracked skull, and a partially amputated foot. Quinn returned to the room once he heard no more noise and when he came into the room, he decided to turn on the lights and I'm not sure if this was just a reflex of entering a room and turning on the lights or maybe he actually wanted to see what happened, but when the lights turned on, that is when all of the boys had confronted the horrific crime they had just committed. Jamie had regained consciousness as the boys were stealing jewelry and decided to play dead until she felt they weren't there anymore. Once the boys had left, she crawled to a nearby phone, dialed 911, and hid and hid in the kitchen until the police arrived. Billy says in his interview that prior to the day of the crime, he was under the impression that it was just going to be a robbery and they were just given knives as protection in case the cops came or in case there was someone in the house with a weapon themselves. But Billy was not aware that Stephen and Chris had already planned on killing them. Billy said that the original plan was that if someone was in the house, they would tie them up and use chloroform to knock them out. But where would they get chloroform? Stephen had actually asked Autumn to make him some chloroform because apparently Autumn was super talented at chemistry. Autumn obviously said no, but he really thought nothing of it because he knew that Stephen owned a copy of, quote, the anarchist and terrorist cookbook. Billy goes on to say that they didn't bring any chloroform and after the robbery, they fled to Chris's car, changed into a new pair of clothes that they all had in the trunk. They then drove Billy back to his car at Walmart and then dropped Quinn off at home before heading to Autumn's house in Brookline at 5.30 in the morning. Chris would go on to say that he thought that maybe if he murdered someone, he would feel something, but when he did, he felt nothing. He said that he saw Kimberly lying there with her forearm open and her bone sticking out, but still felt numb. There was no puke, no tears, just nothing. And even when Jamie had yelled, quote, please don't do this, and Kimberly replied with, quote, it'll be okay. He felt no empathy or remorse for the either of them. Now, a side note, Autumn was not informed about any of the burglary that they were going to do. He was not aware of anything. He was just under the impression that Stephen and Chris were going to come over and hang out and they had just committed a burglary and nothing more. This is when Chris and Stephen met Autumn's roommate and Autumn even asked Stephen, why is he acting so weird? And Stephen said, quote, I'm just really amped and I've got a massive adrenaline rush right now and Autumn asked why and Stephen replied quote oh we just killed two people and said it super nonchalantly and Autumn replied with yeah okay. Again, because Autumn was just under the impression that this was a burglary and nothing else. Autumn had then helped the boys dispose of the evidence down the road and threw all of the evidence like their clothes and weapons into a river, but Stephen had actually kept two knives and a machete. When they got back to the house, Stephen started spilling the whole entire story of the night, to which Autumn just sat there scared, horrified, and confused. There was no way that his friend could have done this, but there was just too much detail 
detail. Then Stephen ends the story by telling Autumn, quote, there's only five people who know about this, the four who did it, and you. If it comes down to it where the police figure out, we know you ratted, and I love you like a brother, but I'll effing kill you, and I will kill everyone you care about. Autumn then led the police to the river where they threw away all the evidence, and there they would find the bloody clothes, David's insurance card, a jewelry box, an air conditioner screen, gloves, and a red sweatshirt with the writing on the sweatshirt, quote, this is Steve's sweatshirt. I mean, how more obvious can you get that Steve did this crime? Now, Stephen didn't just confess to his best friend, Autumn. He also confessed to another friend. When they all went to Walmart so that Billy could pick up his car, they met up with another friend named Eldon, and Stephen had confessed the crime to Eldon too. The group said that Stephen was super amped up as well because he was on numerous drugs. The next day, they pawned off the jewelry for $130. Then after that, they went to a friend's house named Kyle Fenton's, where Stephen once again confessed to the murder to his friend and even showed the friend the machete and knife they used. And at Walmart, when Stephen had confessed to Eldon about everything that went on, he even gave Eldon the same threat as Autumn, where if he were to tell anyone, he would kill him and his family. And this obviously scared Eldon, and so he went and told his mom, and his mom told the police. Billy said that after the crime, Chris and Stephen seemed very amused by it, and they were just laughing and excited about the whole encounter while him and Quinn sat in the back of the car in disbelief. Only one time, Quinn spoke up after Chris said, quote, I'm happy I got the kid, and Quinn replied with, quote, no, not women and children. And to this, Chris and him got into a small back and forth, but nothing more than that. Quinn also said that later that night when they met up with Eldon, Stephen and Quinn felt that Eldon knew too much and wanted to commit a second murder of the night until Quinn stepped in and stopped them. Chris said that that morning, all of them went on the Telegraph to see the article of the Mount Vernon home invasion, and as they were reading everything that happened, they found out that Jamie had survived. Survived. Stephen then gave Chris flack for it, saying, quote, Wow, Chris, you couldn't even kill a 10-year-old. At least I killed my bee. Their trial started two years later in 2011, and although Billy and Quinn seemed like the more innocent ones, their actions following their confessions didn't align. Billy and his dad had planned on actually selling Billy's story to multiple media outlets in exchange for money. Billy and Quinn were given plea deals in exchange for testifying against Stephen. Billy pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder, burglary, and first-degree assault and was sentenced to 30 to 60 years. Quinn also pled guilty to burglary, robbery, and conspiracy to commit burglary and sentenced to 20 to 40 years. Autumn was also charged with hindering apprehension and conspiracy to hinder apprehension and sentenced to five years. And as for today, Autumn is released. Chris pled not guilty by reasons of insanity, but this was immediately thrown out because the judge knew that Chris knew what he was doing at the time of the crime and actively chose to follow through and he was sentenced to life without possibility of parole. And he even confessed at his trial that he should be locked up forever and if he's released, quote, nothing could 
prevent him from killing again. Now, as for Stephen's trial, he did not take his trial seriously whatsoever. He was very openly smiling, laughing, and making jokes, and on the day of his trial, it was his 19th birthday, and even made the joke to his attorney saying, quote, you think the jury will sing happy birthday to me? And throughout his trial, although he pled not guilty, Stephen was then sentenced to life without parole. As far as the aftermath of everything, in 2012, a law was passed that said that in New Hampshire, you cannot sentence minors to life without possibility of parole. The minor must be given some sort of time in order to achieve parole. Now, this ended up helping all of the boys' cases, but weirdly, Stephen had filed a motion to not appeal his parole, to which the judge had agreed to it. Stephen's reasoning for denying possibility for parole was that he is, quote, the most sick and twisted person you'll ever meet and should never be given a second chance. This also helped Quinn and Billy, who now Quinn is said to be released in 2029 at the age of 35, and Billy is said to be released this year, actually, in 2024 at the age of 31. And a lot of people question that maybe if the boys had never confessed the murder to anyone, and if Stephen never went to Autumn's house and never said anything, the boys could have possibly gotten away with this because it was a completely random murder. I mean, as far as we know, the boys did not know Kimberly or Jamie or have any connections with the family. So a lot of people wonder why Stephen and Chris kept on talking about the story and talking about the murder to multiple people. And this weirdly actually happens a lot. Another example of this is the case of the Richardson family, where 12-year-old Jasmine Richardson had killed her family to run away with her 23-year-old boyfriend who had aided her in the murders. But after the murders, they attended a party where at the party they confessed to the murder with a group of friends. Now, some murderers will discuss their crimes, whether to people, in writing, over videos, some keep trophies, because by that time, the high of the murders and the adrenaline rush that you get would have worn off. And so they tried to retell the story in hopes of reliving the moment and getting that high again. But in the end, that is essentially what got Stephen caught. And yeah, that is the end of today's episode. If you guys found this episode interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you are on YouTube. If you want to follow me on any of my socials, like my Instagram, that will be linked down below, as well as my PO box if you want to send me anything. And yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day today. Make sure to be safe out there, get outside today, and as always, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.